You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us on episode 47. Can you believe it? 47 straight weeks of podcast goodness that we have pulled off together. Shooting for a full 52. We are going to do a full year. Then we'll probably just turn around and do another year. But what a year it has been. Cannot, like literally cannot get into what a crazy year it has been. But here we are together and uh, standing strong going into the Christmas season. And let me just tell you something about pastors and Christmas. Sometimes we don't like it. I mean, we like we like Christmas. We're not anti-Christmas. We love the dear baby Jesus. We love um, the songs. We love the incarnation. We love the truth. And we love the gospel. But sometimes when it comes to Christmas church, people's expectations are through the roof. And it wouldn't be bad if you had a church of one family, which I actually know exists in some places. But if you had you know, just one vein of people, but you've got people from all over the map and they all come with expectations and then they all look to you to deliver their childhood experience to them. And uh, you just kind of have to look around and say, okay, who are we going to disappoint this Christmas? Because we can't do it exactly the way they remembered. And especially in 2020, we can't do it like anybody remembered. So anyway, this year at Christmas, I'm looking at the Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament, but I'm looking at them deeply in context in which they were given. Most of us recognize the Christmas prophecies less from the scripture and more from Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born? Oh yeah, I saw that. It's in gold flake on a very embossed picture. Well, it also was given by a prophet in real time to a king who was facing the siege of his country. And what God with us means to him is really interesting. So stick with me. We dove into it on Sunday, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9 this weekend. If you'd like to join us, you can go to thebridgekc.church, find a Zoom link there. We would love to have you live and in person. And if we can't do that, we're glad to have you this way. Stay with us for Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, Like I said, turn to Isaiah 7, although I'm going to start with a verse in Hebrews 10. And we're starting a a series on uh, promises of Christmas. Uh, While you're searching for Isaiah, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, hope is a funny thing in that it kind of waxes and wanes. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but it refers to the stages of the moon. You know how sometimes you get up in the morning, you see the moon, and it's just a sliver. Other time you get up and see the moon, and it's it's full and it's round. And our hope is like that a little bit. Once it, it waxes and, and wanes, sometimes it, it seems very full, sometimes it does not. And the writer of Hebrews here challenges us not to let our hope do that because the giver of hope does not do that. Promises made by God do not warrant a fickle response at all. And so going into the Christmas season, I want to look at these promises that were made regarding Jesus and who they were made to and what they mean for us. Now, I think uh, going into fatherhood, I was telling some of you at the very beginning uh, about a little moment when Grayson was born, going into fatherhood, 
there were a lot of things I was prepared for and a lot of things I was not prepared for. And one of the things I was not prepared for was the decades of questions and requests that I would then face as a father. Because whether you have 10 or you have two, uh, the questions just never stop coming. And I feel like I'm answering questions constantly. Uh, can I have a playhouse? Can I have a piece of cheese? I mean, they're all over the gamut. And you, because they come so quickly, you have to be careful of what you promise because promises are nice but they are only as good as the one who can deliver them. And there is an ache between promises made and promises fulfilled, and it can be a painful one. And most people who receive promises from God do so in a context of a hard situation to begin with. They are in need. If there wasn't an element of pain, we wouldn't be looking for a promise. Last week uh, during our Thanksgiving service, which was so much fun, so grateful for everybody who participated in that. And in that, well, Lesse referred to living in this season of delayed promise. And in this Christmas season, I want to look at some of the promises of Christmas, particularly the promises of Christmas that point to a way of life that is better than just living and dying so that our children can live a little longer and die a little better than we did. For most of history, that's all that reasonable people have expected. Incremental extension and improvement of a life that ends up coming to an unexpected end. I heard recently that the life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped. Uh, the Center for Disease Control has had people in a panic because here in the United States, where things are always supposed to get better and better, in the years 2014 to 2017, life expectancy actually dropped from 78.9 years to 78.6 years, which doesn't seem like a great drop unless you're at the very end of that, then it seems pretty significant. But there's this panic about the idea of life expectancy dropping as if the goal is only for it to get higher and higher and higher. Unto what end? Is it like as if we're going to get to be 112 and say, yes, but I'm, you know, feel like I'm only about 100. You know, like that is that much different. There's got to be more to life than a high life expectancy to keep us going and looking forward. There's got to be something to set our heights on beyond that more than just hoping to die a little richer and a little after the guy across the street. Now, you can't blame people because we think about life that way because we don't know what else to ask for. Jesus is an answer to a question that most people don't even know they're asking. You would think that most people know what they need, but history would tell you that we really don't know what we need. We're blind to our greatest need. When Henry Ford said, starting out his company, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses because people didn't understand what the real need was. We don't know that Jesus is the answer to our question because we don't even know what the questions are. What he's promising us is something beyond what we can imagine. So we're going to learn from the prophet Isaiah today that God gives a promise for more for life, and he promises it to people that aren't even really sure what it is they're asking for. Now, I'm going to give you uh, kind of an overwhelming amount of context this morning. And I want you to just stick with me. I will get to the actual scripture in Isaiah. My hope is, though, that when we get there, you'll have more of a hook to hang this on than just kind of your childhood romantic memories of Christmas. We are grateful that God is making promises for things that we don't even know enough to ask for. And he's answering questions that we're not even smart enough to ask. He spreads a, spreads a banquet table for us, when most of us would settle for a grilled cheese. Now, I like messages with lists and specific points that help us to remember things. I really like to preach that way. 
but the Christmas season is better portrayed as a story. You do not need a message about five ways to thrive in a crazy holiday season. You need to enter into the story of Christmas this year. So I'm going to ask you to put yourself in this story, to identify with the characters, look for your own feelings among the feelings that we're going to read about, because as technology marches on, when it comes to the human psyche, there's really not much new under the sun. And the more things change, the more people stay the same, particularly in how we regards and how we react under pressure and when we're afraid, because that's when we really reveal who we really are. So to pick up this promise, we're going to go back about 735 years, roughly, to before the birth of Christ, 700 years before the birth of Christ. And this is a really uh, time of quick change. It is quickly becoming a very international time in history. City-states are becoming nations, and nations are beginning to relate to one another differently than they did before that. It's less of a clan-based exchange, and there's actually foreign policy going on between some of these nations. The Greeks are colonizing the Mediterranean, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians have split their nation into two nations because that way they can terrorize their neighbors even more effectively with two armies. And at this point, Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom that kept the name of Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom that went by the name of Judah. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom was divided when 10 of the 12 tribes in the north felt like the centralized government was overtaxing them, and they pulled away to find their own nation. You know, like I said, some things never actually change. Imagine the pain in the heart of God now. He's looking at these 12 tribes as his family, and they're looking at it as economics and politics. This would be like your children near the end of your life deciding they're not really a family. They're just a limited liability corporation, and some of them want out. That's what this would feel like to the Lord. The southern kingdom consisted only of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it became known as the kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. The northern kingdom consisted of all the remaining tribes and was called Israel. They made Shechem their capital, then they moved it to Terza, finally to Samaria, where it would remain for the duration of their existence. The kingdom of Israel in the north was the larger of the two. And it controlled a lot more of the trade routes than Judah did. Now, territories expanded and moved and shrank over time. Evidence from the outside the Bible suggests that Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, was way more powerful and influential than Judah in the south. Israel had the 10 tribes. It had much more of a population. It was more international and more astute. If you were working for an international firm to trade with, you would go to the northern kingdom. You might go to the southern kingdom if you wanted to buy mulch. It was just there wasn't much down there. But Judah had Jerusalem, and because of that, Judah had the eye of the Lord in the way that the northern kingdom did not. God has always been connected uniquely to the city of Jerusalem, and still is today. Zechariah describes it this way. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Jeremiah said it this way in chapter 3. He said, at the time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God, and all the nations will gather to it. Jerusalem has always captured God's imagination like no other city on earth. And over time, after being attacked by enemies and disconnected from their family roots, the ten tribes in the north that made up the northern kingdom dissipated into the culture. They just dissolved. The people of God, detached from the presence of God, always just become normal people. 
Jerusalem in the south kept the southern kingdom grounded, but the northern kingdom had detached from that. It's one of the dangers of living a little bit detached because we've got to find God for ourselves. You know, I think you'll understand what I'm saying when I say this. I don't care that much if the bridge ever becomes a major player in the church world of Kansas City. I want to expand the kingdom, but I'm not motivated by being a force to be reckoned with, whatever that looks like. I really want to host God's presence. I'm not saying we can't be both, but if we're forced to pick, I want to be a place where his presence resides. And down in the southern kingdom, Judah, the two tribes remain, and they had Jerusalem. Now, at the time the story is told, everyone's still in their place. The 10 tribes are still there, and the two tribes are down in the south. And as you can imagine, between these two countries, it was a little bit like two adult brothers that lived a little bit too close together. There were tensions between the two groups, and those tensions are about ready to go through the roof. King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom, and he had not been the king long when we joined this story. Division has already started to affect the people of God, and it's getting worse because neighboring countries are starting to interact with them as individuals. And it's a little like when your older brother starts hanging out with his high school friends and you're still in junior high, you feel left out. You might have fought with him last year, but now he's going to play with basketball with somebody else and you feel left out. Rezin is another character. He's the king of Syria, and he is one of the Jewish people's enemies, both the northern and the southern kingdom. But Rezin, the king of Syria, decides to wage war against Judah, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, by nature of its location, is a very tempting ally. So he makes an alliance with Pekah, the son of the king of the northern kingdom. And Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of the king of Israel, are aligning. And they lay siege to the southern kingdom. Now remember, it's not that big of a place. And Rezin and Pekah are using a form of extortion here. The southern kingdom is not really their target. They're trying to force Ahaz into joining with them to go to war against the king of Assyria. So that's the scene. I told you I was going to give you a ton of context. When we get to the promise, I think you'll understand how this all fits in. So here we are in Isaiah 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not mount an attack against it. So here they are, the two armies come, and they come and lay, lay siege to the southern kingdom. Now, a side note here, uh, war is very different in these days. We all live in a day where you can wake up and grab your phone and check the news and discover that we've launched missiles against a country we've got to Google because we've never heard of it. It's very fast, very quick, very different back in these days. War was a slow affair. Soldiers are killed a few at a time. The battle is significant, but just as significant to the battle are the supply lines, because if your soldiers get way out there and you can't feed them, you have grumpy soldiers, which does not bear well for the general. It's first rule of being a dictator, you always feed the soldiers. And so it, was, it took them a while to lay siege to Jerusalem because they've got to supply all their soldiers and get it all set up. Meanwhile, King Ahaz is looking over the wall and he's watching what's going on. And going back to Isaiah, it says, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, referring to the northern kingdom kind of by a nickname there. Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest 
shake before the wind. This is what is known as a widespread panic. This is the kind of thing that would cause the Jerusalem Costco to run out of toilet paper instantly, okay? It would cause the entire nation to start to quake. Ahaz is new to the throne. He doesn't totally trust the northern kingdom. He really doesn't trust the Syrians. And you can imagine the turmoil that he's in at this point. It's a complex problem, not with a good and a bad option. It's got bad and worse, and he can't tell which is which. And enter Isaiah the prophet. Throughout history, God has used prophetic voices. Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to the prophets. God always has a man or a woman on the inside. And the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament prophet serve unique insights into the heart of God. It is his plan to and practice to partner with people. And that's what he does here. And he starts in Isaiah 7, verse 3 through verse 9. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shirjab, your son. Remember that part, you and your son. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and tell him, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. He's referring to these armies out there. He's like, they're just smoldering stumps. Don't be faint, don't be afraid. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim or the northern kingdom and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you saying, let us up go against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and let us set up Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Those were their words. Those were the words of the kings who were laying siege to them. And then in response to that, the Lord speaks. Always remember that circumstances do not have the final word on your life. Everything that he has just said is true. The armies are there. That's why they're there. They're laying siege to them. But God always has the final word. And so Isaiah continues to prophesy. Now in the voice of the Lord, he says in the next verse, Thus says the Lord your God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He goes, those fire-burning stumps out there, in 65 years, one of them is not even going to be a country. Just hang tight. If you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. That last line is gold. If you are not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. Where you put your feet needs to be able to support the weight of what you are called to carry. Growing up down the road about a quarter mile from our farm was uh, this old abandoned house that we always referred to as the old house. That was clever, I know. And it had been there for decades. Uh, I was asking my mom earlier this week, and she said that when they moved on the onto their farm in 1955, it had been there for decades abandoned. So it was just, there's no windows, it's, it's weather beaten, it's, it's just completely empty. And uh, it was two floors, two rooms on the first floor, maybe three on the second. I don't really remember if we're going up to the second because it was in such dilapidated shape. One day, the neighbor's teenage sons were exploring though, and they went upstairs and they stepped on a rotten spot of the second floor and they fell down completely between the joists and just created an elevator where there had been no elevator and went straight down. 
and landed on the first floor. And I, I was old enough to remember when they were checking on him to make sure he was okay, him saying, it looked firm, but it wasn't. There are things in life that look firm that are not. And what we chart our course for, whether success or failure, based on what we is based on what we believe to be firm. We relate a little bit to Ahaz here because so many things that we thought were firm in the past few years have been proven not to be firm. People that we thought would stand by us, institutions that we thought would last, lots of things have struggled this year and our firm stand in some things has been shaken. It has been a year of shaking, but it has been a firm but kind shaking as it has revealed something important to us. If we don't stand firm in our faith, we're not gonna stand firm at all. I really believe the coming year is not going to be necessarily one of better strategies or even changing circumstances, but it's going to be people who surrender their hearts to Jesus and surrender to nothing else and say the only thing firm that we have is what God is doing in us. Now, here's the challenge to Ahaz. God had established him in the role and promised that he could succeed. Now, the king of Judah has got to believe it. If he doesn't believe it, it won't affect the outcome of this battle. The Lord's already declared how this is going to work out. But it would affect the course of his own life and reign as king. God calls him to a life of faith, not to see things changed or that God needs him to believe something in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He calls him to a life of faith so that Ahaz would be everything God wanted him to be. God is not waiting for you to get some faith equation right so that he is free to act. He is looking for you to hear his voice so you are free to be everything God calls you to be. Ahaz had been appointed by God, and now he's questioning his kingdom and his own leadership because of outside voices. So after giving him the promise, and Isaiah is saying, those kings are not going to last forever, and God's hand is on you, Isaiah asks him, to ask for a sign to confirm this is a true prophecy. In verse 10, Isaiah says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He goes, somewhere between hell and heaven, you ask for a question, you ask for a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. Now, all of this sounds very high-minded. I will not put the Lord to a test. I don't want to test him. Scholars say the original language is more nuanced than that. One second. The original language is more nuanced than that. It isn't that he didn't want to ask something of the Lord. He doesn't want the sign because once he sees the sign, he's accountable for the prophecy. Do you remember as a kid trying to get out the door as a teenager, before your mom said, be home by 11? Because if you didn't hear it, you had plausible deniability. If he doesn't receive the sign, he wasn't responsible to be faithful to the one who gave the sign. And it's actually even more complicated than that. Besides not trusting the Lord, he has arranged for a political alliance with another king. Ahaz isn't trusting God. He's trusting his own wisdom and foreign policy because he's made a treaty with another king in another land before he went to the Lord. You say, how do you know that? I don't see this anywhere in Isaiah. Well, this story doesn't just take place in Isaiah. It's one of the beautiful things about the Bible is we often have the same story from multiple different angles. It's what makes the Bible such a, a great resource, really, for ancient history. 
Uh, for instance, if you jump forward 750 years to the first century, you would think we'd have much better records. When Julius Caesar takes the Roman army and conquers much of Gaul or Central Europe, all of what we know about that campaign comes from a book called The Gallic Wars written by Julius Caesar. Like he got to write the book on his own history and it's the only point of reference we have. Well, in the Bible, many times we have multiple points of reference for one event. And this event is also recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16. If you go to 2 Kings 16, it gives the background on what Ahaz does while he is watching these kings mount against him. 2 Kings 16, 17. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath Pileser, the king of Assyria. This is the this is the Darth Vader of the Middle East at this point. And he is saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So Ahaz doesn't want a sign because he doesn't want to be accountable to the Lord, but he also doesn't want a sign because he's made other arrangements. He's already, he's like, I, I actually don't think I need a sign from the Lord because I've got help coming. Now, here's the wild part. How did he get the protection of the king of Assyria, of the king of Assyria? He paid for it by plundering the house of God. In verse 18 of 2 Kings, I'm sorry, verse 8, 2 Kings 16, Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it to the king of Assyria. He literally refuses a sign from God because if God speaks clearly, he's got to respond in a commensurate way. And on top of that, help is coming from Assyria and all it cost him was everything that belonged to God. All he had to pay for protection was all he had to do was raid all of the, the holy things and turn them over to the enemy. He would not be the last person that took what was God's and tried to make other arrangements for his well-being. Let me tell you, there are things in your house that belong to the Lord a portion of your finances, your talents, even your children that are clearly the Lord's. And Isaiah responds to King Ahaz by giving him a sign anyway. I love this. It's important to understand that this sign came to a man who did not want to hear it. And it's a sign that still has ramifications for us 2,700 years later. Isaiah 7, 13 and 14. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't want a sign? You're getting a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Some of you have never known where that promise fits in in all of Bible history. He tells Ahaz the king, a virgin shall bear a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel or God with us. There is so much in these two verses. I want to unpack them in kind of a backwards way. First of all, you'll call his name Emmanuel. We all know the meaning of the word God with us. It's so sweet to think of a baby named God with us. But think how it sounds to a king whose city is under siege for whom he has made a deal with the devil to get help and is not convinced that God wants to help him at all. God is with you. It borders on a poke in the eye on his own planning that God would be with him in this season. 
That is how hard it is to resist the Lord. He can offer you a sign and you can refuse it. He'll send a sign anyway, just to prove you wrong. And the sign is you're not alone. You're just outnumbered and outgunned and out of hope. But he brings the hope as well. The message of Christmas, as first expressed in the prophecy from Isaiah, is that against all odds, God comes for the beaten. He comes for those that have no hope. In that area of life where you feel like you have zero hope, he comes for you. In that area where you have given up and you think this situation is so bad, I may need to make a deal with the devil to get out of this one. He's like, no, 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 no. He's coming for you. God with you. Emmanuel. He promises Ahaz hope that telescopes beyond Ahaz's own situation to the benefits of the generations throughout time. He uses Ahaz's hopelessness to deliver hope, not just to King Ahaz, but to all humanity. And it will be marked with a miracle. Before telling them that it will be God with him, Isaiah tells him a virgin will bear a son. Now, Liberal scholars will be quick to point out to you, well, there are multiple connotations for the word virgin, and that is true. In Old Testament times, they could have used it for a woman who had never been sexually active, or they could use it just for a young, unmarried woman. But in this context, Isaiah was very clear. He's like, no, this is a virgin in the sense that you and I would use the word today. So clear that 760 years later, when Matthew would record the promise to the angel of Joseph, Matthew said in chapter 1, 22, or 21 and 23, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this, Matthew is recording this, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now back to Isaiah, Isaiah goes on to describe Jesus as both an ordinary boy and someone completely unique. He said he's going to eat normal food and have a supernatural ability to choose good. In verse 15 of Isaiah 7, he says he will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. It's like he will be in the car seat eating chicken nuggets, and yet he will know between good and evil, and he'll be able to choose if you have children, you know that the, when they're little, they have a hard time making that choice. He's like, no, no, no. He's going to be like no other man that's ever lived. Even as a young child, he'll be able to tell the difference between good and evil, and he will choose good. The normalcy of Jesus as a physical human being is as remarkable as his divinity. He's fully God, but he's fully man. His, his, his family would have needed angelic support and insight and a diaper genie at the same time. This child, this baby, really would be God with us. Then Isaiah brings it home to Ahaz, because Ahaz is not going to live long enough to see Jesus. But there's something here for him, too. And if you don't read it correctly, you don't catch it. But back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16, he refers to another child. When In verse 16, he says, before the boy... Uh, the language experts tell us he is referring to another boy. He's not talking about the, the child Emmanuel before another boy. And there's almost this idea that he's nodding towards the son that he brought along. Remember at the very beginning, go out and meet Ahaz, you and share Jezebel, bring your little boy with. And he says before the boy, 
knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. In other words, the, the one that is coming born by a virgin will know how to choose evil and good from birth. But before this boy is of an age of accountability and understands good versus evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. It's like, I'm sending you a child through a virgin who will answer all of your issues. But this child here, by the time he is of an age of accountability, the kings that are laying siege to you won't even have a country to rule over. That little boy didn't just come with Isaiah because it was, you know, the prophets take your child to prophesy day. That wasn't, that wasn't it. God intended this to show that this young boy would still be a child when those two kings were defeated. And Isaiah was right. Within a few years, the northern kingdom would be completely gone. And their allies in Syria would be destroyed. This morning, if you feel pressed on all sides, even maybe questioning a role that God might seem to have put you in, and now you don't know how that's going to turn out. Maybe the idea that God would be active and interested in your immediate situation is almost foreign to you. And you've kept your God thoughts in one box and your life thoughts in the other. What are the words of Isaiah to the king? What are the words he said? Hear then, house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you'd weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Some of you are like, I didn't even come looking for a sign. He's like, no, there's a sign that's been given. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. The sign is that God is with us. The Christmas story of Jesus entering into our mess and starting to rebuild. So like Ahaz, we could live out the calling that he's put on our lives. Now, you might not be a king. Chances are you're not, but you're a dad or you're a leader in your community or you're a mom. You're that one office worker in your whole area who knows the Lord. Where he has put you, he will stand with you if you stand firm in your faith. And if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand firm at all. My hope would be during this Christmas season that when you're flipping through the Christmas cards and you see that gold embossed lettering, that says, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel, you will internalize that. And you will realize, oh, God, not just God with us in the Christmas sense, but God with me in the setting that I am in to walk out the calling that he has put on my life. Thanks for joining me for a cup of coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and you can find out more at thebridgekc.church, thebridgekc.church. Have a great week.